Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the ideas, events and policies that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. Today we're going to have a slightly different podcast. Instead of talking about what Europe should do in the world, we're going to talk about how to do it and the future of diplomacy in an age of networks. And I have three amazing guests to discuss that with me. First up is Jeremy Haymans, the CEO and founder of Purpose.com. He's a social activist who's been involved in setting up lots of campaigns and uh, agencies for change in different countries. First in Australia, uh, one called Get Up. He was involved in Avaz, which is a famous global organization, but now he uses Purpose as a platform to get involved in all sorts of different issues. <laughs> Second uh, is Amory Slaughter. She is the CEO and president of the New America Foundation, uh, but has had a whole host of top jobs in the American administration where she was head of policy planning in the State Department but also uh, in academia and has been writing about networks I think probably for longer than anybody else in the, the academic world. Um, and finally uh, Carl Bildt, the former Foreign Minister and Prime Minister of Sweden and also one of the co-chairs of ECFR. So Jeremy, why don't you um, start by setting out the frame. You've written uh, a wonderful piece about new and old power and about how the internet and the emergence of new technologies is not just changing the world, but it's fundamentally changing the nature of how power is, is exercised. Can you tell us how that works? Uh, happy to. Great to, great to be here um, with some, some people that I, I really admire. Um, so, you know, the, the, the origin of this thinking, which I developed with uh, my colleague Henry Timms, is um, sort of we, we were often as an activist you're often asked the question you know what's happening in the world and, and the questions are always reduced to a discussion of technology so I kind of got sick of being asked the question did Twitter cause the Arab Spring <laughs> um, and when the Arab Spring unraveled you know uh, did that mean Twitter um, was useless and you know I think many of these discussions kind of get stuck on the role of technology and Henry and I wanted to um, offer a frame that focused more on what we think is the more important shift, which is a shift in power. And so, you know, we developed this very simple framework, which we which we published in Harvard Business Review um, late last year. And basically, it's it's contrasting old and new power. Um, and you know, you essentially can think of that in a, in a very simple analogy as the difference between old power being held like a currency, being something that you hoard, something that the more you have and the more you, you hoard, the more powerful you are, and you can think of new power as a current, right? It's something that you channel, it's something that is most powerful when it flows. And, you know, what we did in the piece was, was think about that in terms of models, behaviors, and values, right? So you have these new bottom-up models that are emerging, and what we were struck by is you know, how much common ground there is between the shifts that are happening in politics, in business, in media. The common element of many of these models is they are, um, they are based on mass participation or, and in some cases, and peer coordination. And that is the enabling element of the model, and if you don't have mass participation, they're empty vessels and they don't work, right? Um, you've got old power models that are that are obviously based on, you know, very familiar structures um, of top-down authority, consolidation of resources, uh, etc. You've got a series of behaviours that these new power models rely on, um, and so you think of the old power behaviours that most of these models run on. Basically, you're asked to consume, right, buy this newspaper, you know. Um, you know, t take take this this instruction. You know, any for any number of forms of of compliance or consumption, 
and then you think of behaviors that are um, new power behaviors, right? And these are the behaviors that we uh, exhibit every day when we engage with these models. We share content and other people's ideas. We shape those ideas. We remix them. We repurpose them for other purposes. We engage in this new kind of funding behavior, which uh, is crowdfunding, which isn't traditional philanthropy, nor is it traditional transacting. It's this kind of endorsing with money behavior that occurs within the context of one of these peer communities. And we produce, so we engage in a bunch of behaviors around offering our own assets um, you know, in a, in a platform like Airbnb. And we engage in kind of co-ownership behaviors uh, in platforms like Wikipedia. And finally, we set out kind of um, old and new power values. And I think our observation there was that, um, you know, like it or not, there are fundamental shifts in uh, the orientation of people on key dimensions today who've been engaging with these new models. And I think, you know, relevant to, to the kind of um, discussion today about international politics, you know, there's definitely quite new attitudes, different attitudes to governance, right? So there's no doubt that um, the new power crowd would probably not have invented the United Nations. You know, probably <laughs> devalues some of the formal, you know, um, institutions of representative governance and inclusion. Um, and, you know, there's, a, there's an emphasis on network governance. And you think of, you know, the, some of these platforms that I've been involved with over the years, and what they have in common, for better or worse, is you know, the members don't vote, they're not perfectly representative of their populations, they're a kind of networked, informal, opt-in form of participation, right? And so what that results in is a set of, um, you know, essentially a set of values that places a great deal of emphasis on collaboration and participation as ends in themselves, and some devaluing of, of competitive behaviours, um, and I don't want to overstate that, but certainly the way you're successful within the context of these new power models is by being a better collaborator, by sharing, you know, you're not good on Twitter if you never retweet other people's work, or you're not a successful Airbnb host if you take photos and tell people that there'll be um, luxury bath products and then, and then there's no soap when you show up, right? So, so there's sort of different norms, and we also talk about norms around transparency. You know, this is an obvious thing, but clearly very different values around transparency. Young people placing a great deal of emphasis on, on transparency, often to the exclusion of um, a separation between the public and private spheres, um, a real emphasis on, uh, and frankly, a devaluing of some of the older diplomatic techniques where two gentlemen got into a room and made a gentleman's agreement. So we got the perfect segue to you, Anne-Marie, because you, <laughs> you are the ultimate theorist of networks, but then you went to work in maybe one of the most traditionally hierarchical institutions um, in the world. How did you square the circle? Yeah, uh, and I have to say uh, that it's, it's great to follow Jeremy because uh, I wrote an article in 2009 in Foreign Affairs that was called America's Edge, Power in the Networked Century. Mm -hmm. And I argued that in a world of networks, in a globalized world, which is, is enhanced uh, enormously by the technology of the internet, but even independent of the internet in a globalized world, power comes from connectedness. In other words, the, the, the most powerful nation is the most connected nation, not necessarily the nation with the biggest army or the biggest economy or the biggest population. And so in a way, that, that idea of power being connectedness is, is, I would now say, it's part of the new power, mm. and we could work out the differences. And I start there because that's why Hillary Clinton hired me as director of policy planning. She had read that article, she got the idea of operating in a world of networks, but then Mark, as you say, I joined the State Department, which is uh, probably the most hierarchical 
organization anywhere, certainly the most hierarchical I'd ever been in. I spent the first six months uh, being told I couldn't meet with someone either because they were above me or below me. You could only <laughs> meet with people who were your peers. And the equally, uh, you know, the State Department is a still a world of states. It's aptly named. It operates in what I think of as the chessboard world of traditional international relations where there are 200-some countries in the world and about 50 of them that the United States works with very closely. And it is, as Jeremy put it, more people in a room making deals. More women now, not only men, although still largely male. Uh, and Hillary Clinton said, yeah, of course, that the chessboard wor world is there, but we also have what I would now call the web world, the networked world, the world of people of businesses, of non-governmental organizations, of universities, of criminals, uh, all of those entities that operate across borders and in all sorts of different kinds of networks. So how do you do diplomacy in that world? Uh, and the starting point's a kind of interesting thought experiment. Given that now every human being on Earth could own a cell phone and will own a cell phone within <laughs> probably a couple decades uh, or sooner, if you started out to create diplomacy today, you'd never create embassies because you can theoretically text every person in the world uh, directly. So the way you think about engaging people, and again, that can include <laughs> business or civic groups, is to create government to society diplomacy, but also to enable society to society diplomacy. So we spent a lot of time thinking about Governments have to, to create um, networks uh, of entrepreneurs, of women, of civic organizations. Uh, we actually created ambassadors to groups. So, you know, a global ambassador for women or a global ambassador for civil society or a global ambassador for youth or somebody from entrepreneurs. So part of what you do is you create networks uh, a government actually goes out and says, you know, I'm, I've got an ambassador to these people, uh, and that way I develop relationships with these with these networks. And the second thing you do is to enable people to network with each other uh, in ways you, you want to be creating good networks. Mm -hmm. <laughs> there are lots of criminal networks. There are lots of power networks that, that may not advance your interests. Uh, but part of what you're doing is creating platforms so that, for instance, we did a lot of technology camps where we taught civil organizations how to use technology to network with, with each other. So that's one version of what I would call diplomacy in the web world using the power of networks. So, Carl, you, uh, I think, have the distinction of... of um, am I right in thinking that there's an email from you in a music? Did you send the first email ever to President Clinton? Not, no, I'm not the first email ever, but uh, I, I think the that's the first leader to send him But an the email. first uh, not head of state, because if you're Prime Minister of Sweden, you're not head of state, <laughs> yes. that's the king. But, but on that particular level to, to President Clinton, yes, which was quite a funny story. That was in 1994. So it's quite <laughs> some time ago. And uh, <laughs> the Clinton administration at the time, and that was Vice President Al Gore, you remember he even invented, he invented the thing. The Internet, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they, they had made quite a big blaha about sort of the superhighway and whatever. So I decided, uh, and I was quite early in these things, so I decided to test that. So I sent an email to him. I had his email address, <laughs> which I got somewhere. 
and um, then we were waiting for something to happen and then we waited for something to happen and then we waited for something to happen and then uh, my staff called the White House and said um, did you notice the Prime Minister sent a mail to which the answer was no we are not really connected uh, but they connected fairly fast after that and did send the mail back and then we changed a couple of mates and you can find them nowadays in the museum in Washington so but that's that it's like Alexander Graham Bell it's yeah, like yeah <laughs> quite it was quite over but that 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 was sad that that was Stone Age so how um, has it how has uh, diplomacy changed since then, since the first email between I mean, Diplomacy, the word has changed, as <laughs> I'm very sad. Um, I mean, we have, I often phrase it as we have sort of the battle between the hierarchies and the networks mm. of the world. Uh, diplomacy is very much, states are hierarchies by definition. And diplomacy is a very large state-to-state -state relationship, hierarchies, national hierarchies that are dealing with each other. And I wouldn't say that all of that is gone. I mean, you can't no. conduct the Iranian nuclear talks by Twitter. Um, the Israelis would be happy because they would be even more able to listen into them, I guess. But, but that's a separate issue. But Rouhani did sort of try. He he, yep. he did no. start with Twitter. You, you didn't well, government, <laughs> society, you can, you can do lot. You can do a lot of signaling. Yeah. You can get your message out. Mm. But as said, uh, networks are increasingly important in the world. Um, and networks, I wouldn't say that necessarily undermine every single hierarchies, but they undermine quite a lot. And particularly if you, coming from Sweden, uh, we are not a nation that have any aspiration to conquer the world or to rule the world. Uh, we can only build our future by networking with the world. And accordingly, our ability to sort of reach out and to understand the world in its all of its complexity, not primarily state-to-state -state relationship. But groups and uh, civil activists and economy and God knows what's happening out there mm. uh, is highly facilitated by that. And to reach out, we want to be heard. Um, so I think we've been sort of one of those that have been in the forefront of, of, of using all these things. And how do you think being uh, one of the leaders of the European Union uh, affects your outlook? Because the EU, in a way, is a network uh, of itself. Um, it's not a classic intergovernmental organization. You've got the national politics of one member state affects the national politics and, and mm -hmm. decisions in others much more than in any other part of the world. But also the decision making is very, very complex. There are lots of different actors that can, can fit in. I mean, does that, do you think, make Europeans better suited to dealing with a networked world? Perhaps I would wish that was the case, but at the same time we are not necessarily at the forefront of the development of new technologies. And I think uh, when I look at the world today, uh, the, the, the part of the world where things are expanding fastest at the moment is China. I mean, they're well ahead of the U.S. in terms of e-commerce, that in terms of sort of networks and the political dialogue on <laughs> the net. We are all aware of the fact that restrictions are heavy. We have an enormous expansion in Africa. Uh, within five years, 90% of the population of the world will be covered with mobile uh, broadband networks with a better capacity than we have in most of Europe today. That means that practically, and the digital divide is going to be the generational, not the geographic, it's going to be the okay. generation. Mm -hmm. All young people will have some sort, some sort of device. And I would say we'll see more of an impact in Africa, India and those places. And uh, then we have the possibility of interacting with them, understanding them. They have the possibility of interacting with us in the same way as we can do also 
within and with the, as you said, somewhat complicated structures of the European Union. Mm. So, sorry, I'm so I would, I would uh, uh, augment that by saying that the EU uh, has a structure that is much more likely to be a model for other uh, regions, which, Mark, you know a great deal about. You've written about this. But I think it goes to Carl's point about hierarchies versus networks. The federative model, which is the United States, which is Germany, which is the, the what I think of as the 18th century solution to how you brought different parts of a country to, or different groups of people together to create a larger viable uh, state, that's a hierarchical model. You know, there's the federal government and there's the state government and there's the city government. That is not a model that other regions are going to follow. And as much as people don't look at the EU and say it's dysfunctional, there's no other alternative for countries that are not going to give up their language, they're not going to give up their government, they're going to have to come together in some kind of networked way to, to create the power of a regional economy and the power of uh, a common political social space. Uh, and, and in that sense, the EU is this new networked entity that I think is the best we've got for how regional organizations will develop. So maybe to move uh, a bit more into the detail of how this network work, works. Jeremy, certainly uh, from the outside it looks like um, the new power that you're talking about is very good at getting people to say no to stuff. Um, <laughs> there are protests uh, breaking out all over the place. I think mean, last year alone there were like 80 countries right. that had massive protests. Right. And it's quite good at overthrowing hierarchies. Um, but how good is it at actually doing, getting people to say yes to things and building things? I mean, is it just a vitocracy that's emerging <laughs> as a result of these networks? Or are there examples of um, it being channeled into building things which can last as well? Because one of the other challenges to the new power is that you get these incredible surges. It is like a current which can be uh, channeled, but then it also evaporates and goes into different areas. What will happen? Are there area, are there examples of it not dissipating? Yeah. Well, look. Um, I think I think the short answer is not very good yet, right? And so, new power, great at campaigning, bad at governing, right? <laughs> and uh, and you know you even you even see that you know like President Obama uses these tools brilliantly to get elected. Um, crowdfunding and this very distributed network of volunteers, but then yeah, has he governed in a fundamentally different way from the perspective of of using mass participation to inform the way he governs? Not really, right? So it's it's quite difficult to do that. Um, I don't think there are any um, experiments that are really at scale, particularly in the domain of government, um, where you can say, wow, this is transformative yet. I think that though the, the nuance here is um, you sort of need to think about it as an ecosystem, right? So you think about the role of these surges. It's creating a space that sort of more old power actors and, and solutions can then come in and fill. So you think about like the role of Occupy Wall Street and people sort of say, well, that was a waste of time because it didn't immediately produce a particular policy outcome. But I would argue that it opened a space and a frame for a debate about inequality that old power actors from academics to policymakers have now begun to fill and that will see real impact. So part of the, I think the method here is understanding when to use new power, right? Um, especially if you're trying to change the conversation, right? Black Lives Matter. They shouldn't be in the business, I don't think, of trying to be highly programmatic about everything that they're trying to recommend. Their role is to create the space 
and to apply the pressure and then others are going to have to do those things. Now I think in the medium term you will see the development of some tools. There are people, very smart people now, beginning to think about things like group decision making tools, the blockchain mm -hmm. is going to be a very interesting uh, way to facilitate mm -hmm. Um, much more networked collaboration that doesn't require intermediaries. So mm -hmm. I think you know we're going to get there, but in the, at the moment we have a, 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 a kind of a blended power approach is needed to get real stuff done in the world. And Anne-Marie, one of the big things that you were involved with when you were in the State Department was getting the State Department to think about digital diplomacy and yes. how it could use new power tools. But do you think that the best thing is to have this collaborative approach, which Jeremy's talking about, where genuine civil society um, creates the space and then the hierarchies move in behind it or is it possible for hierarchies to 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 really exercise new power without looking like a kind of granddad in a, in a disco so it's got a really good beat to it <laughs> granddad in a disco is a great is a great image it is the problem of all uh, you know sort of older school politicians trying to be hip. Carl, Carl is actually one of the great exceptions who has <laughs> was, 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 been ahead of everybody else on social media and, and other ways, but people who come late often seem very awkward. You know, this it's a, it's a really good question. I fundamentally think that the State Department, the hierarchy that is the State Department and the traditional foreign service can't survive in the current form through this century. So that really, just to take a very concrete example, you know, we have the idea that you come in as a foreign service officer and you spend 30 years and you make it to ambassador and you go up in a very rigid way and that's what you do. And what we actually need are people who've been in business, who've been in academia, who've been in NGOs, moving in and out of a role in which they represent their country uh, and then do other things. And what they would then do in the, even as formal representatives of their country, would be to be bringing together partnerships of other business and civil society to solve problems. And that's the model that we, we have to go to because we're not going to have a global government. We're going to have different forms of governance, and they are going to include lots of different actors. So, you know, there's the jargon of multi-stakeholder coalitions. I think it's more fluid than that, that, that what a diplomat will do is to use a combination of old and new power. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think Carl's right. There are things you have to negotiate, and you have to have a clear uh, party to negotiate with, and the closer you get to old-fashioned security problems, mm -hmm. war, <laughs> right, economic yeah. collapse, the, small, you know, the more important it is that you have a very clear leadership and you know whom to talk to and you have the power to implement. But it's going to be a mix of those tools and the tools of either mobilizing a protest or mobilizing support or uh, creating networks that can actually implement. Because Carl, you've basically probably been stuck in more smokeless, smoke-filled <laughs> rooms than, than most people in no, their, no, no, in their no, lives. No, 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 you, no, you're saying, no, 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 smoke-free now. Yeah, yeah smoke-free smoke yeah, with a lot of really yeah, yeah. frustrated people <laughs> eating cookies. Yeah. <laughs> Rushing in and out. Yeah. But you also had, I'm not sure if it's still true, but I remember at one point you definitely had more Twitter followers than the Pope did. <laughs> Maybe this Pope's more popular than the last one. But what did you, how, how did you, how did you try and blend the two what did you think you could are there examples of your of your deliberately using these kind of new techniques to, to get things done 
Oh, absolutely. Um, there were X numbers of examples of me using Twitter to get my message out. Uh, and often, perhaps, to get a sharper message out than the classical diplomatic channels would even have allowed me mm. if they could <laughs> try to stop me. I'm not quite certain, but they were not entirely happy with it. Absolutely. And, 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 and you could do that very effectively. And uh, there were also examples that were used, as a matter of fact, sort of direct messaging to get in contact with foreign minister colleagues that we sort of ambassador couldn't get hold of and classical <laughs> means, but a direct message did work, uh, also in some fairly old countries that you would be surprised with. Um, so I, I, I agree with everything that Anna-Maria said. I think it's going to be uh, it's going to be both hierarchies and networks. But I mean, in terms of diplomacy and foreign affairs or whatever we call it, the emphasis is shifting. The emphasis is shifting. There are going to be far more network activities, and uh, the hierarchies will be less important. Then I think truly intriguing is the question: Is governance by networks possible? Mm -hmm. And going back to what we discussed, sort of this famous email with President Clinton, that was 20 years ago. Yeah. Um, then email hardly existed, but it did exist, and it was a thing that you did communicate. The web, uh, Mosaic, appeared the same year. Um, think ahead, where are we 20 years from now? Mm. Uh, you mentioned blockchain, I mean that sort of, that really intrigues me. What is blockchain for people who are not? Uh, well, for the, it's, it's, for the it's granddads who are trying to <laughs> catch up. No, no, quite. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it, even, the, even the young folks, it's complicated. It is, it is un it's very complicated. It, it's the underlying technology of the Bitcoin. Uh, it allows you to uh, communicate value securely peer-to-peer. -peer. You don't need an intermediary. And I think this technology, I, th this technology is now where roughly the internet was in the late 80s. So how does that help you make? How does that help you do governance? Uh, but, but, but I, we don't know. But, <laughs> but uh, we didn't know very much about the internet in the late uh, 1980s either. Um, it, it clearly takes away intermediaries in the financial mm. world, as we've seen. Right. Exactly. Uh, it might take away intermediaries in quite a number of other words as right, well exactly. when it is developed, like exactly. property rights. And property versus rights. it totally yes, changes absolutely. the role. If you think of government to you know mint a currency, yep. that's a pretty right. fundamental government, yep. uh, and to guarantee property rights, this is the core of what government does. Yep. And if you suddenly don't need government to do that because you've got everybody has one identity, yep. exactly. you know, a set uh, an ability to to identify what they own mm. and to exchange it for value without right. government. That's it means you don't. <laughs> it means you don't need a platform, right? So, an yep. analogy that helps me to understand it is is the example of music. So you could have an artist who puts their music onto the uh, onto the blockchain, and then can set their own terms, effectively their own contract mm -hmm. for how people use it, right? Mm -hmm. Their own mm -hmm. sort of licensing requirements, which means you don't even need a Spotify anymore, right? You yeah. don't need <laughs> the intermediaries, even the online ones, in the same way that. And this is, I think, relevant to this point. Um, because the challenge with these intermediaries, even the new online ones, is they get really powerful. Yeah. Mm. And then they start looking very old power, right? They really <laughs> consolidate and concentrate power. And I mean, your point about China, you know, it's so interesting because you're right, China is um, so far ahead in some places, in some mm. ways, in terms of engagement, right? Mm. So, you know, you think of this WeChat platform, mm. which has mm. hundreds of millions of active users. And these people are just like doing so many things, except engaging on things that the state Except having too many connections, because yes. then the authorities don't like it. Yeah. Exactly. Um, yeah. So, so it's we really have to watch the Chinese yeah. developments rather carefully. Right. So that's yeah. one of the most intriguing things is how because 
um, hierarchy is obviously very uncomfortable about a lot of these different techniques, but the Chinese government's actually been pretty good at using them. In some ways, exactly. the Communist Party's been strengthened by the arrival of the internet mm -hmm. because it can understand what's going on in society, it gets signals, uh, it's less likely to, to make big mistakes. Uh, and because it controls the servers, ultimately, um, it doesn't know where everyone lives, so you can go and um, uh, lock people up if it gets too far. You can take some stuff down, but by and large, it gives them much better information than they'd have without the internet. But to what extent do you think the the states are going to stop these sorts of new things emerging? I mean, blockchain, you were saying, could actually... Um, I mean, because currency is obviously one of the most important and identity, they're pretty central functions yeah. of, of sovereignty. Yeah, but People have been talking about the splinter net for a long time. And I know, Carl, this is something that you've um, been thinking about as much as anyone, the governance of the Internet. But post Snowden, with these sorts of, you know, with all these protests going around in different places and all these challenges to state power, do you think that it's inexorable that the, the walls will carry on falling and that we're going to move towards... Uh, a much more networked world or do you think that we could see the states kind of fighting back and restricting where data uh, flows restricting um, the the whole governance of the internet breaking up into into constituent parts well I mean the states well not every state but I mean some some regimes let's use that word are fighting back I mean take the Chinese as an example they are they're they are clearly they're clearly fighting back and they're selling their fighting back technology to other selling, dictators. Selling <laughs> the fighting back technology to other sort of similar or similar minded regimes. But at the same time, um, when I was in China sort of a week ago or something like that, all of the business leaders of China are saying we now got to go global. Mm. I mean, they have to decide whether they are fortress or they are part of the world. Um, I, I try to say to them that you talk about sort of one, one, one road and one belt, but it's even more important is one net. Yeah. Uh, for the future global position of China. Uh, so they face policy dilemmas here. Mm. And uh, what's going to be the outcome of it? By no means certain. But I think that technology is advancing so fast and the ability, particularly of the younger generation all over the world, to be able to use technology. So it makes it bloody difficult even for the best yeah. determined regime to really stay on top of things. Without hurting themselves. Without more than hurting the themselves tremendously. Because that's Iran too. Yeah. Yeah, Iran's yeah, in the same Iran position. Is, it has Iran to open up. Iran has nearly given up. Yeah. And I wonder whether the, the more sophisticated response by states will ultimately be, uh, you know, so if you think of the Chinese context, it's actually, you know, they're allowing a lot, right? And so they're, mm -hmm. they're sort of distracting people, frankly. They're, they're saying, go consume. Share your circuses. cat videos, <laughs> go crazy, right? And 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 you know, there's a contract implicitly being made with citizens, mm -hmm. where there's a there's a very limited space for political speech, but all other forms of participation and engagement mm -hmm. are wide open and encouraged. You know, broadly speaking, so so that might be the more sophisticated response by states, which is mm -hmm. like a, a, a narrow carve out for for sort of some of the political speech that most directly threatens um, those regimes. Um, but this very wide space for engagement with with those platforms, and that's a bit of a depressing outcome, because you know, as you say, I think that's a more sustainable position than the lockdown position, which just doesn't work. But so it's a bit depressing. Can we're um, coming to the end of our time? Um, I wanted to 
maybe end by asking you each one question because we're in this weird uh, moment where the world is more connected than ever before there's no such thing as purely domestic policy anymore and yet almost all countries have been severely cutting back the amount of money that they spend on diplomacy in Britain after severe cuts the, the Foreign Office is lining up to have between 25 and 40 percent of its budget cut over the next uh, cycle and that's uh, replicated right across the board in different areas. If you were giving advice to, to foreign ministers in Europe about how they could make themselves relevant to this new world, what kind of one thing do you think uh, a, a modern diplomatic service should do differently which could actually um, demonstrate its, its value in this very different world where you have this blend of new and old power being exercised? Do you want to go first, Anne-Marie? Sure, because uh, I, I, I hinted at that before. I mean, if uh, My advice to foreign ministers is essentially to change the nature of their foreign services uh, fundamentally, which means use, allowing people to move in and out of the foreign service, maybe on five-year five -year contracts, mm -hmm. uh, but in such a way that the foreign service, the people in it, would become the hubs of multiple social and economic and political networks. So that, you know, as I said, somebody who's been a CEO who now wants to come in, now in the United States we make that person an ambassador if they contribute enough money to a campaign. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about someone who says, you know, I've been on the ground in business or I've been on the ground in a, in a non-governmental organization. Now I want to represent my government. It would be cheaper in many ways, uh, it, but more importantly, it, it connects the diplomats to the networks while still retaining a hierarchy while they're actually in the Foreign Service. This is not a popular position for any <laughs> foreign minister, but I think it's going to have to happen. What do you say, Tom? As former foreign minister. No, no, no. Next I, time I, you become foreign minister, what are you going to do? Well, I mean, I've, I was foreign minister for eight years. That was enough. But, that, but, 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 but anyhow, I, I made a point of never asking my minister of finance for more money. Uh, and I was forced in the beginning to be, be, do quite some stouts and cutbacks because we have uh, had a big deficit. I think that was a good thing mm. because I could reallocate money. I could uh, get away from things that were not necessary in the new world. I mean, diplomacy is a very traditional thing, and the diplomatic profession is not uh, not uh, not always a vanguard of change. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> so an, an, an element of new thinking doesn't hurt. And uh, when we talk about these new technologies, uh, one of the things that is so important with them, they are bloody cheap. Yeah. Uh, you can do a hell of a lot of things with a fairly limited amount of money. Mm. And the cost is going down all the time. So if you open your mind, develop the networks, you can do far more with less mm. money. I mean, I wouldn't... I wouldn't like all of the treasures of Europe to hear what I'm saying because it shouldn't be carried too far. But, but so there's no solidarity amongst foreign ministers by the sound of it. So Jeremy, what's your what's your advice? I mean, I would I would echo Anne Marie's point, which I think is really important, which is this idea of kind of that foreign ministries and 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 don't always need to actually be the actors who are involved. A lot of the work has to be the facilitation of networks. And I was struck, um, been looking into recently the sort of efforts to counter the social media recruitment of, um, of Islamic extremists by ISIS. And I was so struck and, and really surprised by all of these US government um, efforts, which literally have the seal of the government on the Twitter page. <laughs> and you're like, 
Let's think, guys. People who are on the border of conversion to Islamic extremism, who would be an effective voice to just keep them on the side of not the U.S. government? And so, you know, I was just really struck by that. And um, and so this is the point. Like sometimes it's not about the the official acts. It's not about putting your brand in there. Sometimes it's about the sort of enabling, the enabling facilitating other actors exactly. who are much better yeah. Yeah. Uh, positioned to carry forth a message. And yeah. you know, I, I I still think there's some. Some big cultural challenge in in doing that, but uh, but yeah. Wow! So sounds like there's quite a lot of reinvention that needs to happen <laughs> if uh, European and other governments are going to wake up to this new world and learn how to exercise power in it. So that brings us to the last segment of the podcast, the bookshelf segment. Jeremy, why don't you go first? What are you? What's on your bookshelf at the moment? Well, um, well, actually, um, <laughs> I have received from Amazon, but have not actually begun to read. But I'm excited to do it when I get home because it's on my desk at the office, Unfinished Business, which is uh, Anne-Marie's book about, uh, about gender and about the future of work um, based on some of the incredible talking and thinking she's done in this area for you know, over the last few years. So um, I can't wait to, to read something, you know, maybe a little less academic than some of that networked governance yes. stuff that I read as a grad student 15 years ago. Um, and uh, very excited to, to read it. Well, thanks, Jeremy. I have to say I laugh that when uh, people who have read Unfinished Business say, great, and what else have you written? And I think, <laughs> I'm not sure the New World Order is going to be quite your speed. <laughs> but the book I just read uh, that I think will win the National Book Award at the, in the United States and the Pulitzer Prize is Ta-Nehisi Coates' mm. Between the World and Me, which is an extraordinary achievement. Uh, in writing, it's a mm -hmm. cross between... Uh, William Faulkner and uh, many of his more, sort of more contemporary novelists, but it's also, particularly for a European audience, it is a view into race and power and history and contemporary discrimination uh, that helps you understand a part of the United States. Americans need to read it, but others mm. also. And it's an extraordinary read. What about you, Carl? I read a lot of history. I picked up a small thing by Margaret Macmillan on the lessons of history, which I hadn't seen before, which she published, I think, two or three years ago. I don't know why I haven't seen it, but it's worth reading. And then I'm reading Neil Ferguson's uh, first part of the sort of fairly massive biography of uh, Henry Kissinger. Uh, where he really dives down fairly deep in uh, uh, both kissing and needless to say, but in European history and American modern history. It's, it's a history of much more than Henry Kissinger, and uh, hmm. in the typical style of him, um, contains some strong views as well. <laughs> so, real old power. I was <laughs> going to say, yeah, that's an old power. Yeah, that's, that, that, that's really, I mean, if, if you take Kissinger and sort of the Congress of Vienna and things, that, that's old style diplomacy. But history <laughs> is important also to understand the future. So I'm going to uh, maybe be slightly guilty of brown-nosing too many of, uh, of, of our guests today, but I'd like to recommend Jeremy's uh, Harvard Business Review article on the new and old power, which was a really fantastically mm -hmm. crisp uh, introduction to this new world. And Anne-Marie's New World Order, actually, which is maybe not so new anymore. But it was still one of the, uh, one of the best uh, introductions to the theory of mm. a, a totally different mm. Mm. world, um, which is, I think, borne up much better than almost all the books about oh, the New you. World Order that came <laughs> out after the end of the Cold War.
So thank you very much from uh, Amory Slaughter, Carl Bilt, Jeremy Haymans, and myself, Mark Leonard. It's goodbye for now. The editor of ECFR's podcast is Katarina Botel-Atzinaro, and our researcher is Ulrika Franke. Thank you.